our relationship with art is weird. On the one hand, everybody likes a good movie or a good song. We've all got our favorite musician, right? But if you ask someone if they're sophisticated when it comes to art, then most of the time they'll get really humble really fast. Oh, art? Me? No, no. I mean, yes, I'm part of the beehive, and yes, I will fight you to the death over the meaning of a Beyonce lyric, but, you know, I'm no art snob. On today's episode, Brendan and I have a conversation with performing artist and choreographer Michael Wells about how we as a society think about art, why we think about it the way that we do, how we treat artists, why we treat them the way that we do, and why artists put up with the way that they're viewed and the way that they're treated. We're all friends, so there's a lot of good energy in this episode. And I think we all leave the conversation understanding each other just a little bit more. Also, a quick note of gratitude to the amazing patrons that support this work. You're all incredible and I'm deeply, deeply appreciative. If you haven't signed up yet and you'd like to support Bottomless Coffee as well, please go to patreon.com slash bottomlesscoffee. Hey everybody, welcome to Bottomless Coffee. Uh, I'm Jerome, your ever-caffeinated host, and Brendan. Are you still? Okay. Still teetotaling, not, um, no caffeine for me. I replace it with alcohol and, um, the rest of everything I put in my body that's junk. You know, Brendan, every week is like a little stab. (laughs) I found out my pre-workout doesn't even have caffeine in it, which is the one place that I thought I could go find it. Okay. Okay. Question. When you take your pre-workout, do you, do you feel like you get really pumped and energized? Were you like pretending that you had been having caffeine? No, no. My face tingles. Uh, like I cannot have a full conversation. One time I took it at work when I was about to go to the gym and then my boss stopped me and tried to have like a regular chat and it just off the rails. Okay. Okay. And so because you don't usually take caffeine, you did not realize that that was definitely not what caffeine does uh that's what happens to me if i drink like a a double espresso the same thing happens to me since i have such a low tolerance yeah okay i agree if you go from zero to double espresso strange things will happen to your body yes yeah can confirm (laughs) can confirm well today we're going to talk about art so let me ask you do you have like a favorite style of art Um, I don't. My relationship with art has been complicated because Uh I just don't get it much. Um, and didn't for a while until very recently. So I'm I'm an art recently. I uh, well, so I was always in like Mulan Junior the Musical and the Mikado Junior the Musical and marching band and all of these performance type things. Okay. Um, and I looked at paintings and stuff, um, but I didn't really like get art, you know. Um, well, and then in college, I took okay. a class on like formalist analysis, which was totally unrelated in like Latin poetry, right? Okay. But the tools of like analyzing how you would have a conversation with a piece of work 
allowed me to like look at art in a different way. It was weird. So even when you were younger and you were creating art in your school, whether that be through what sounds like maybe a musical, um, mm. and even playing an instrument, it wasn't until you were able to like process it through your like frontal lobe, I guess. Because <laughs> <laughs> it just finished developing. Um, no. Yeah, it's, well, I don't even think what I was doing was art because you can perform a piece of music, I think, without it being art. And I think I got to the place that like art means that someone is interacting with a piece, whether whatever medium it's in, they're having that interaction. And that's kind of necessary for it to be art. Like it can't exist in a vacuum. Um, okay. I may be making I, up that theory. Well, what I find really interesting is that uh, you, you, you seem to have this idea that there has to be like an, a connection of some point, right? Like between the artist and the observer or like the work itself. And you are like, I'm not creating the art as like a high school. What instrument did you play? Trombone. The alto saxophone, but thank you for thinking it was trombone. As an alto saxophone player, you're like, I'm not creating art. Um, but surely the person that composed the music was an artist, right? So did you feel like you didn't connect with the music that you were playing? Yeah, I didn't connect with it. The people that were listening to it probably didn't connect with my performance of it. Um, yeah. You know, all of those things. And, and I think that kind of sucks whatever the essence of artness is out of it. Okay. Well, now let me, but what about like movies, right? Did you not watch like an, like an exceptionally good movie and think, oh my gosh, this is a work of art? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good, because you have that like, interaction with it but i didn't know how to put a name to it until i like learned how to analyze why do i think this is such a good thing so Very yeah retrospectively yeah have you done any art yourself have i had any art uh yes certainly um i think it was really important to my mom growing up that she exposed me to um to art to quote unquote western civilization there's definitely some white supremacy stuff to unpack there. But we would travel to like uh, European countries and go to museums and experience like quote unquote real art. Um, and I, I definitely felt that connection to art at a younger age. I also went to a performing arts high school. Um, and I think that we were encouraged to believe that our like jazz hands uh, in our performance that we were creating art, right? Um, there, there could be something there um, wherein like we were being told that what we are doing, what we are creating is art, whereas it sounds like maybe you weren't having that same experience. Yeah, no, I mean, I would go to the, those museums and stuff and I'd be like, yeah, that's, that's a painting of stuff. Um, <laughs> cool. And then you know, later realized that, like, that is art for some people or maybe for a specific time. Um, and I don't have to get it for it to be art. But it's not art I like. Okay. Well, um, instead of this just being an hour of two people who maybe do or don't get art, who are not entirely sure, 
Uh, we have a working artist, like an actual professional artist with us, our friend Michael Wells. Hi. Hi. Thank you for having me, you two. Uh, thank you for taking time out of your afternoon to come and join us. Um, so you heard a little bit about, uh, obviously you heard our whole conversation. Um, I wasn't expecting Brendan to get all cerebral with it, but <laughs> let's maybe start with just the type of artist that you are. Yeah. You're a yeah. dancer. I am a, what we would call a performing artist. Okay. Um, yeah. So that the big distinction between that and the visual arts is that performing art happens live and it's something that you have to go see in person. Um, but I dance professionally for Diablo Ballet in the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, I'm in my 10th year of professional dance now. Oh my gosh. Wow. <laughs> I know. Wow. It really just flew on by. <laughs> but you're also a choreographer. I am. I am also a choreographer. Um, I choreographed my first like major work on a ballet company last year, and I am working very hard to choreograph a new one for this coming year. But it's riddled with challenges in 2020, but we're working on it. Have you incorporated I... plastic screens between the dancers? Yeah. Well, here's the thing: is like you go to the theater, you go and view art a lot of the times to escape something or to to you know get lost in some other world sometimes the last thing you want to see is like masks and plastic and mm. you know i don't think it's really the time to watch a piece about covid but i'm sure there will be plenty of them out there yeah for sure for sure um well we talked just a little bit about our first experiences with art and um even though i literally went to a magnet school for like aspiring artists. I didn't grow up to become an artist, uh, but you did. So what in your early development, like put you on this road? Yeah. Um, how did I end up doing this? <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's important to know that my mother is an artist. She mm -hmm. um, trained in, in painting in France and is still a painter to this day um and did a fair amount of dance in i guess the 80s um so that plays a big role um just having that sort of maternal support uh the whole way through so at a young age we were my sister and i were very exposed to visual arts certainly um we it, when did i start getting into dance um i can tell you if you don't remember yeah i know i know <laughs> <laughs> quite the story but i'll do it quick so i was a percussionist uh i played percussion from fifth grade all the way until 10th grade and um i was an overweight kid i was medically overweight and i needed to find some sort of activity i tried football it was really not my thing um and then <laughs> this girl i was dating at the time <laughs> was, was yeah was taking ballet at this dance studio down the street from me and being a percussionist at the time I thought tap dance would be like a safe thing to do as a boy. Um, and it, that was, yeah. And so that, <laughs> mind you, this is Atlanta public school. So it's a very different culture. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I got into tap dance initially. I was about 14 um, and I was really good at it. I had a lot of percussion training and that really helped. Um, and so I progressed pretty quickly and then as, many 
male dancers experience this. Um, once you get your foot in the door of a dance studio, those teachers will do anything they can to put you in tights in a ballet class because boys are so sparse. Um, mm. So I found myself slowly in jazz class and modern dance class. And around 16, I was seriously training in ballet. And then... And then is I that a continuum? Like jazz is the gateway drug to ballet? And then it they, was they for like... me. It certainly <laughs> was for me. A lot of people have the reverse experience. Like they do ballet as a kid, and then that sort of allows them to like free up a little bit more and take something like jazz or modern dance. For me, and there's a lot of like masculinity attached to to this. Is like, um, it takes a lot of uh, confidence in yourself and in your own. Yeah, I guess, yeah, masculinity, to take a ballet class and to be the only boy in the room in a ballet class. And especially at that time, I was wrestling with my own sexuality. And so to be the closeted gay boy in a ballet class was like a whole other layer to it. So I was quite resistant at first. Mm. Um, but um, yeah, dance ended up being very important in my life, obviously. Um, I think uh, this is skipping ahead like several years in your story. Um, but obviously, you know, listener, Michael and I are very good friends. And so I follow him and I, I love his career. And it's really interesting to hear you talk about masculinity as a dancer. Because I remember when you were written up by, I think it was the New York Times. And oh. yes. <laughs> <laughs> Have you I heard think... of that publication? <laughs> it's a small, like, just free newspaper. They, it's a little yeah. print shop. <laughs> <laughs> and I think the way they described your movement was very masculine. They used very masculine terms. So I would, you know, you're probably the most masculine ballet dancer I know. You know, it's interesting that you say that because when I was in school, one thing that I was out at this point, um, one thing that was very much important to me was that when I danced, I looked heteronormative um, and I, I tried really hard to be that machismo man presence on stage and it opened up a lot of doors for me in dance however i will say now 10 years down the road i'm such a better dancer now that i've stopped caring about that you know like and if you just let yourself be the flowy beautiful expressive person that you can be yeah. you get a lot more out of it than trying to be something you're not well, yeah, it's now. interesting that like your the the mindset that you bring to it, you know, your struggles with your sexuality or your projection of, you know, whatever gender identity uh, or part of yourself is part of the actual performance um, or affects how you do the performance itself. Um, are there like other factors in your life that have changed or evolved over time that are part of or have affected your performances? Wow. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's all sort of wrapped up. It's all sort of the same conversation. Like, um, the more, like, this, the, what am I trying to say? The self-possessed artist is the best artist. Like, when you go and see, especially in live performance, but this is true in all forms of art, visual arts as well, you see somebody who's very confident and, and sure of themselves, you as the the viewer, you relax a little bit. You get to enjoy the performance and you get to enjoy learning about this person. 
Um, and there is quite a lot of acting attached to performing arts, obviously. Um, as dancers, we act a mm. lot. Um, but you're still, like, what the audience comes to see is you. They don't actually want to see some made-up character on a stage. They want to see the people on the stage. Um, so I think the more I've sort of um, just leaned into who I naturally am and God, this is such a long conversation that I'll try and just narrow it down. <laughs> you, okay, the world of ballet, right, is so specific and so it has very high standards and there's a level of perfection that is required for ballet. And especially lately, I've been sort of letting go of caring about that, like trying to be the perfect ballerina and trying to be what I've seen on YouTube or Instagram or anything like that. Oh, God, yeah. And I've become a much better dancer because of it, because I'm just being me, taking class, enjoying dancing, you know? Yeah. I mean, like, even even in the business world, which is kind of almost diametrically opposed to, to performance art in a lot of ways, there's this theory of, like, if you spend, you know, X amount of energy changing parts of who you are while you're also trying to do work, you are not going to be able to do the best work if you don't like bring your authentic self to it. And so I bet that's equally, if not way more true for, for something that you're putting out there in front of people. Yeah. It rings true in every facet of your life. You know, like if you, if you can't love yourself, how in the hell are you going to love yourself? <laughs> <laughs> but it comes down to, <laughs> but that's true about relationships. That's true about any sort of job you have, um, any sort of, interaction you have with another human being um and i think art is an interaction with another human being whether or not it's a delayed reaction in the case of visual arts or if it's an instantaneous one in performing arts mm -hmm. um it's it's about humans interacting and that's kind of been the big struggle of 2020 is to maintain that yeah um this is a really interesting segue into the idea of access to the arts yeah um so Certainly, I was going to dive into that Atlanta public schools comment you made regarding ballet and segue <laughs> from there. Um, but I think given the circumstances of 2020 um, and how no one is really able to access the arts except through certain um, like gated functions like YouTube with its ads or like Disney Plus and Hulu or $14.99 a month. Um, I do wonder about your thoughts on access to the arts in general, in a general sense. Um, like the kids from Atlanta public schools who apparently did not have the same access that you did. But moreover, um, or in addition to your thoughts on the impact on like us as a society when we don't have access to the arts. Yeah, wow, okay. There is a yeah, whole just lot. In 30 seconds or less. <laughs> um, okay, first I would say that art is the measure of high society. As, a, as any society around the world progressed through like the dark ages and, and such, we developed art last because it's the sign that you have enough free time in your schedule to not be hunting or gathering or taking care of your, your needs. So what happens when a pandemic hits is the first thing to leave is art. Whether or not people realize it or not, this, this, this essential service is completely gone. You know, so you have all these working artists that are currently unemployed because nobody's 
nobody cares about them. It's, it's the furthest mm -hmm. thing from people's mind. So that's one part of it. Another edge to this is access to arts has always been about privilege. It's, it's really, if you are at a, usually a financial place that you have free time, that you can spend money on fun stuff, then you have access to arts. And a lot of people don't have that. Yeah. Um, specifically in ballet, I mean, it's, it's incredibly expensive. Um, I was very, very fortunate to be on scholarship for almost my entire training, or else I wouldn't be here today. And a lot of that to do is because I'm a tall, white male with pointy feet, and so I was, they wanted me in the ballet classes. Um, but a lot of people just don't have that available to them. So for a girl who's training on point, you $80 a point shoe. Yeah, in my mind, I'm building this essay on, um, you know, racial inequities in the ballet world yeah. as a symptom of income inequality in our society. And so yeah. thank you. Thank you for that. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> weird question. That's what I was talking about right now. Um, how, how much do you think that that access issue is on purpose? Because like Broadway shows, mm -hmm. ballets, all of those kinds of things, you could have them live, you could have them subsidized if we cared about them as a society, you could have them broadcast on PBS if we cared about them as a society. So how much do you think it's, you know, maybe people with the free time and the access and the resources actually do want to keep those things to themselves? Oh, like an exclusive sort of thing. Like it's our thing that we do and nobody else can enjoy it. And that's what makes it valuable, yeah. right? Like it's, it's part of high society. Yes, because PBS does play a lot of ballet and like- I thought so, but they don't have <laughs> access. Because they don't have that in the budget. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so yeah. With this privilege also comes this sort of elitism. Like we, to be in the room, if you've ever been to a very big reputable theater, you know what this feeling is. You walk in and you feel like all of a sudden you're part of royalty, everything's gilded and you're sitting in a private box and the seats are velvet. It is all about this exclusivity that it gives you as an audience member. Um, and this is something that Jerome and I sort of touched on in our previous conversation is that that feeling that that audience members get, that elitism, ends up being reflected in the way that they actually end up treating the, the dancers, the actual talent on the stage, not even just dancers, but really anyone in the performing arts, um, where the viewer is almost held on a much higher pedestal than the talent of the performing artists. Mm. Okay, well, let's do take a second, because I am interested in that perspective you know, in your real life as an artist um, versus what, how you're perceived, right, as an artist um, and how much of that is intentional and what art is worth, like what the work of your body is actually worth with these people. I'm interested in diving into this conversation, but we should take a break. Uh, something that I've recently started calling a coffee break, by the way. I thought that was clever. <laughs> Creative. Thank Love you. It. Thank you. Artistic. Um, so we'll do that and we'll be right back. 
One great thing about having these types of conversations with friends is that we're comfortable enough to unpack these complicated issues with each other in front of an audience. None of us have answers to the winding, thorny questions that we're asking, but the exercise of asking those questions informs our friends about where our values lie, and it invites our friends to further explore our way of thinking. Talk to your friends. Get comfortable with the tough questions and the answers that nudge you down the path to understanding. Thanks for indulging us in our little coffee break. Um, you would not notice, but it went a little long because we got kind of talky. Um, I believe where we were was we were discussing um, art privilege, I think is what we started talking about. Um, this idea that art is something that's elevated and possibly exclusive and um, whether or not uh, access to art is a benefit of privilege. Um, and I was interested in uh, Michael's thoughts as an artist, um, maybe as someone who, like, do you, do you feel rich as an artist? Michael? <laughs> 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 okay, okay. Um, no, I, <laughs> and you know what, let me, let me like put that in context. As yeah. somebody who's been dancing professionally for 10 years, I, am a rich artist like if you were to compare mm. my weekly salary to a lot of other dancers or actors i mean i i make a lot of money comparatively yeah which is not really saying much though um for example when i danced in new york city for five years i was making i was dancing as a salaried employee for less than minimum wage oh my gosh yeah and it's and that's, that's, I mean, that's New York. That's like where you go to make it as an artist, right? Do you find that most of the dancers in your company or a lot of dancers, you know, do they also do have like side gigs or like additional employment? Yeah. Yes. I mean, really, there's not a dancer I really know of that just dances. Um, <laughs> pretty much every single person that I know either teaches, does some sort of side hustle in the dance realm, or there's a whole other sect of dancers like myself that work some other job entirely unrelated to dance. Um, just because you just, you cannot make enough money dancing. And there's also a seasonal aspect to it. So currently right now I'm, I'm on layoff until January 4th and this would normally be times to do nutcracker guestings and make all sorts of other money, but it's not. So you have to sort of, as a dancer, at least, you have to factor in these periods of unemployment into your year-round earnings. Oh, this is interesting. I did not mean for this to be like an indictment of the industry, but it sounds like at least uh, a lot of dancers do not get paid a living wage. Yeah, I'd say most dancers do not get paid a living wage. Now, do you, do you feel like you put in like, like I would say a shit ton of work? Cause I know how much, how much work you do. I know how demanding the work that you do is. So you think that work is just like unappreciated or what, what is the disconnect between what you're actually bringing home and the amount of work that you're putting into this craft? 
Yeah. Wow. Okay. So that sort of ties into the the people in the audience being of the elite class and the people on the stage being of this sort of more humble working class thing again. Um, a lot of the conversations that I have with patrons after shows, I'd say the number one conversation topic is how many hours a week do you rehearse? Is this your main job? What do you oh. do for a living? Like, and it's this idea that like, surely you can't be doing this every day of the week, but my rehearsal schedule is Monday through Friday, nine to five. Like we work 40 hour weeks. We often work weekends and that's, that's standing up dancing the entire wow. It's wow. It, it, it takes that. Like we are getting ready for a show at the beginning of February and we have four weeks to rehearse it in January. And that means that it's every day, full out, hard work. You need to get it done. So um, given all of that, why yeah. do you do this? Why do I do this? <laughs> oh, honey. <laughs> well, no, honest question. So like that seems like a lot of work and a lot yeah. of hard physical work. And uh, for not as much pay as you could do doing other things, why do it? Uh, that's a great question. It's something that I've had to ask myself a lot. It's the first question they asked us when you when you went to art school. Uh, we the first thing they made us write essays on was why are you here? Um, because you're about to take out all these thousands of dollars in loans to become an artist, and you potentially will never pay back those student loans on your artist wage. So why are you here? Why do you do this? And the answer ultimately needs to be because you have to do it. Um, and if there's one thing that this pandemic and sheltering in place has taught me is that I absolutely need dance as part of my life. So when I am only working my side jobs, I, 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 I really lose that sense of balance in my life. I need this sort of artistic outlet. I need to be able to be working the creative side of my brain um, or else I really suffer. And I think a lot of it, a lot of professional dancers would say the same. It's something that they have to do. Um, and that's it. You know, I'd be dancing whether or not people were paying me for it or not. So, so do you care who you're performing for? Because it seems like that motivation is super intrinsic, such that if someone gave you some money, you just show up on the stage every time at a schedule and be like, I'm dancing, don't care who's watching. Or does it need to be for people? Okay, this is a great question. It can go down a very deep rabbit hole because it ties into your what you guys talked about at the beginning of this episode, which is like, at what point does it become art? Like, is it a merit-based thing? Is it is and so like many artists have discovered have explored this idea over the years is is it only art if it's good is it only mm. art if you enjoy doing it is it only art if it brings other people joy if you dislike it does it make it not art is it illegal is it art um, there's a lot of things to that um and at the end of the day it has to be it really is a, i mean it's back to that like self-possessed dancer thing like if you are only gonna give it your all on a stage if there's the New York Times in the audience and you're not gonna give it your all when there's a bunch of kids in the audience, then that's that has to do with you as a performer, not to do with the audience. Um, and I think it takes a little bit of maturity to come to that realization. I've certainly phoned it in for plenty of performances like that myself, um, but I think I've sort of reevaluated my relationship with the art form in more recent years. 
would you do it for not an audience or say like you know it yeah, was I mean, I dance for not an audience all the time <laughs> i mean that I, answers the question i choreograph i dance for me um we took ballet class via zoom via youtube all summer long and it's just me here dancing on my own so no one's there to tell me to work harder or pull up more or do it on releve like that's it's entirely self-motivated um earlier in the conversation uh, you mentioned how the pandemic has denied uh, access to the arts right like as a society when we are faced with like this threat one of the first things that we leave behind is our desire for expression right um, but it sounds like on an individual level, as, a, as an artist yourself, you don't have that option. Um, you don't get to like stop expressing yourself because that's part of who you are. Um, in a lot of ways, that seems parallel to some of the racial equity questions that I've had with particularly my white women friends in talking about privilege and the ability to walk away from tough conversations in or what have you. Does that sound resonant to you when I when I speak it? Uh, okay, yeah, definitely. Because uh, uh, it sounded crazy in my mind when I was thinking you know, that I just wasn't sure. That you're trying to discuss here though, like racial equality in the arts and specifically in ballet is a whole other conversation because ballet is a European folk dance at the end of the day. Like it, people yeah, we'll don't- bring you back for that conversation. Yeah. <laughs> So then, what is the question here? <laughs> I think the question was like, do, do I sound crazy when I express this to you? <laughs> yes. Yes, okay. Well, well good. <laughs> okay, okay. Brendan, you got anything? I'm stretching. To follow that up. <laughs> Hi, do I sound crazy? No, well, it's just like... So the pandemic's access to arts. Well, I like to think of things as a system, right? Like the pandemic came, we shut down access to arts because we as a society don't view it as uh, something necessary. Like access to expression is not necessary for us. So we shut it down, right? You're not classified as an essential worker, even though the work you do is essential to your well-being. Oh, right? Yeah, other thing. yeah totally. Um, but at the end of the day, like during this pandemic, did you not turn on music? Did you not watch some performance on, was there dancing on YouTube videos that you were watching? You know, like people are still consuming art, whether or not they realize they're doing it or not. Even an advertisement is art in some way. Um, it's just that people sort of pick and choose what they want to support in this time and what they don't really care about um and i think out of sight out of mind plays a big role here because it's so nutcracker season's rolling around this is the biggest fundraising time for any ballet company in the world really and it's only now that people are really actually sort of starting to realize that oh wait i can't actually go to a theater and see the nutcracker yeah and then they're like oh okay well i guess i'll watch this YouTube version of it instead, or I'll watch some, like, I don't know. Sure. Yeah, some Instagram version of it. 
So I'm gonna I'm gonna take a, a challenging position to both of you uh-huh. because uh, <laughs> Jerome, you've been talking about you know access to the art being important, and it's kind of along these both class and then things that are correlated with class in our society, like race lines, right? Um, and then Michael, when you talk about being an artist, it's it's really that like need to express yourself. What I haven't heard is a connection between those things of like, why is people's access to other people's expression of art important? And then like, if you think it's important, why do you do one of the most expensive, most inaccessible forms of it as an artist? How do you like justify that, I guess? How do I justify it? Oh. Um, I think at the end of the day, where you land and like what sort of art form you fall into is a it's like a personal where did you sort of gravitate towards as a human being thing um did did that come along with a lot of privilege like are there a lot of BIPOC people that would love to be professional ballet dancers absolutely and they don't have access to that but it's I don't know if oh god what am I trying to say here um there's a lot to unpack there. Uh, the access to the arts is a major thing. As I mentioned earlier, just just paying for these sort of classes and to pay for this sort of training costs tons and tons of money. Um, and unless you're being given scholarships, then most people can't afford it. Well, you mentioned ballet in particular just a few minutes ago as at its roots being like European folk dance, right? Yeah. It's all about storytelling um i think at its, at its root so my my favorite art form is the novel uh i will devour a novel and and like live like a hundred lives in one book and um i feel like you as a choreographer in particular are telling stories through dance um the piece that i got to watch on social media that you choreographed told really a story of the pandemic in a way or at least that's what I experienced. Like, that's what I took from it. Um, and gosh, now, now that I brought it up several times, I'm like, I didn't pay anything for that. <laughs> like, oh, I'm contributing to the problem. <laughs> but like, is that the problem? Exposure is part of it too, though. Like, if you're consuming art, whether or not you actually like spent money on it, I think that's part of the bigger conversation, right? Is that, can you only enjoy dance if you can afford to pay for it? Mm. Like, I would argue no. Like, it, I think you can enjoy... Okay, I had this really horrible job in New York City where I danced for a tour bus that drove around Manhattan. Ooh, and so I, I had that. to do, like, a little pot de around Columbus Circle. And at first, you think about only the bus. Like, you're only worried about performing for that bus. But then after a couple months of doing this job and doing the same dance around Lote Circle, it actually became about dancing for the resident homeless population, dancing mm. for tourists that were passing through, and it was actually much more rewarding to dance for those people and then have the bus just sort of drive by and enjoy the show. Um, and I think that says a lot. I think, do you, do you only get to enjoy art if you can afford the ticket price? I don't think so. So are there uh, any things that you do kind of because that that's like a unintentional thing that you realized after dancing around Columbus Circle for a month. Are there any things that you do intentionally that are like, I do want to increase access to to my art form for everyone? Yeah. So one thing that my company in particular learned during 
uh, at least during the Black Lives Matter protests, is that we we look around all of a sudden at the ballet world, and I mean, this is obviously a conversation that's gone on for several years, but we look at the ballet world and it's nothing but white people. And it's, it's like a lot of cookie cutter, the same thing, the same person. And, and we find ourselves asking, well, why, why is that? Like, why can't we get these black and brown people in our studios training in dance? And it all relates back to this. It, ballet is a European folk dance. You can't expect people to even want to be a part of it. Um, so it, a lot of it, really, the conversation started shifting a little bit to being like, well, what sort of, what are you teaching in this school? If it's just ballet, then you can't get mad when people don't want to engage with that. Um, so it's it, it has a lot to do with what sort of programming you do, like in your rep as a company, but also what sort of classes you offer these kids and, and how you give them that information. Like when I was growing up in dance, uh, hip hop, contemporary, like African, stuff like that, that was always an elective it was optional like it was at the end of the day so most people left anyways like it was always this like that doesn't really matter it's all about the ballet it's the most important thing and then a really beautiful thing that's come out of all this is that we the dance world is rethinking the way it talks about forms of dance um and what they hold in, on pedestals versus others um which is great but it was just so much work to do um, so we, well, one thing that we do at our company is we have a, it's called our peak program and we go to uh, juvenile hall for women and we get these young girls that are on, like in trouble and then offer them dance classes while they're in juvenile hall. And then they're all offered free tickets to come see the show. But in the 25 years that this program has been around, no one has ever come to see the show. Really? Wow. And I think so that so that was the conversation that we were having is I was like, well, what what are we doing to get these people to see us dance? And the answer is that we're not actually providing something that people want to see, or at least that, that demographic wants to see. Um, and so there's there's a, there's more work to be done into our programming. Yeah, I mean that would explain both the the consumption side and the expression side. Um, and I bet there's a lot of ways that like people are figuring out how to democratize it further, especially in forms of consumption with the pandemic. Um, have you done anything that's like a, a digital virtual dance show yet? Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All the time, bud. Um, we did, so we just premiered the Nutcracker, um, a couple weeks ago and then we're re-premiering it again, uh, around Christmas. Um, so we're doing that. Um, and then when at the, originally when the pandemic hit, we reworked my piece for stage to be a like at home dance alone sort of thing. And that was very successful. Um, and that's, you know, that's just out there. That's free. You don't have to pay for it. You enjoy dance. And that has been really awesome to see. And, and a lot of other companies have done similar stuff. Um, so I think there's more access to at least performing arts than there has been in, in years past. Um, yeah, I haven't really, I haven't really thought about like when I'm sitting at home during the pandemic, like, oh, I could go watch a ballet right now. How do I go get access to that? Where do, where do I find you dancing online? What are the services? <laughs> Gosh, where do you find me dancing online? I think where it's on YouTube. I think you could just Google search YouTube. Um, 
Vimeo. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, the, the, the at the end of the day, when, when was the last time you were in a ballet uh, theater, Brendan? Uh, I don't think ever. Yeah, okay. Oh, so ever. I think that, that you actually represent the majority of America um, and that there's enti- the entirety of the Kirov Swan Lake is on YouTube. You can just watch it. You can Google or YouTube Swan Lake and you can watch the entire thing. Dance for, by one of the best dance companies in the world. But people have to want to watch it. Sure. If I were going to get Brendan into ballet, um, is it, what's that troop? The Trox? <laughs> yeah, the, the uh, Ballet the Monte Carlo Trocadero. Ballet Trocadero de Monte Carlo, sorry. Yeah, there, it's a bunch of, um, men who do point and like do drag ah oh nice um my feet and my balance and almost everything else about me would probably prevent me being successful at that but i could try <laughs> well you could just watch i didn't mean like <laughs> oh i Jerome said get me into it as in i thought he was about to put me in the junior chucks and um you know, yeah. we will we will re uh, discover that conversation about uh, dancers as hobbyists later on down the road, Brendan. Because I don't think that's sunk in. Uh, but as we close, Michael, like what can we do to support the arts and you specifically? And because I don't think you're going to plug yourself, what is your Instagram so people can follow you? My Instagram is Michael I Wells. Okay. Thank you. So my middle name is Ian. Um, the, to support the arts, I think... How does it support your company, even? My company is Diablo Ballet. You can go to www.diabloballet.org. We're in our 27th season, and I'm choreographing a piece on the company right now that you can financially support, which would be awesome. Um, but I would even say, like, just like the share on social media does a lot. Just visibility is a major thing. I think when I said earlier, out of sight, out of mind, I think mm. that plays a part right now as well. With If people aren't even looking at dance on a stage, then they're not really thinking like, oh, what are these people doing right now? I guess they're probably unemployed and maybe could use some money. So like, even if you as the person are not able to be a benefactor, able to be a patron of the arts, even just sharing and consuming and encouraging other people to consume visual art or performing arts does work. It does a service. Um, so yeah, just go watch some dance. I think you'd actually be really surprised at how impactful it can be on your life. Agreed. So, Any last words, Brendan? Yeah. I mean, just a quick question about maybe the future of uh, everything. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, imagine a world where people are like, hey, I do want to watch some dance today. And maybe it's not the full Nutcracker suite, but it's like a 20 minute piece on a topic that they're interested in or some part of their identity that they want to see expressed. And they could go on, instead of Disney Plus, it's like Dancers Plus, and there's a subscription, and they're just, you know, streaming those kind of things. Or like, fans for new dance pieces uh, <laughs> it doesn't have to be fans it could be a patreon anything you want it to be but those kind of things uh, and i don't know that they exist really do you see that happening does that already happen they exist i 
again, I would argue if you're if you're not looking for it, you're not going to find it. Um, so Marquee TV is kind of major is the major like Netflix of performing arts. You can go to Marquee TV, and if you pay for a subscription, you can watch entire metropolitan operas. You can wow. watch. I know a lot of really iconic uh, ballets being performed, but also really like all sorts of works. Um, so that's a really good one if you want to do like concrete sporting of the arts, because that money ends up going back into the arts again because they have to buy the rights to these pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, that one's good, and that is like the streaming option right now. The other option would be to um, start following these companies that you're interested in on social media because they will post about their shows. They'll post about performances. They'll send you links to things. And um, that's what we do. We send out once a week, we send out an email with something. There's some dance performance, some little clip, some interview, some behind the scenes work. Just there's always something. And it's again, it's all about that consuming of media and also sharing it with other people so that you reach a broader audience. Yeah, I mean, because like what they did with Hamilton, putting it on whatever streaming platform it was, I mean, so many more people got to watch that. And all of a sudden people are like, oh, I guess Broadway isn't what I thought it was. It's not all, mm-hmm. it's not all a chorus line, you know? Like, I think- It's <laughs> in Oklahoma. Uh. Yeah, seeing rap <laughs> on Broadway, maybe people didn't realize that Hamilton was like that as a musical. Um, mm. I think that did a lot of good for performing arts. Yeah, I mean, like, if they had every musical that was, like, a movie, like you release it, you run it for three months exclusively in person, and then you have a streaming option that's more accessible. Okay, really good Scott. learned in 2020 is, is that it can't just be that one-off in-person performance, is that it's got to be this, it's got to have a digital presence as well as that in-person presence. Well, I will subscribe to your dancing fans, should you make one. Oh my gosh. Oh, well, on that wonderful, subversive note, (laughs) thank you so much, Michael, for joining us and uh, putting up with my crazy questions. And uh, I think it's fair to say Brendan's overt flirtation. (laughs) I really appreciate it. I thought I was being subtle. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. I hope you'll come back sometime. Thank you for having me. I miss you both dearly. It's a pleasure. Talk soon. This conversation made me very happy. I left the conversation understanding the topic of access to the arts and the way that a couple of my friends think just a little bit more. Michael, Brendan, and I are all passionate about equity, but because our values and life experiences differ, we approach conversations about equity from different perspectives. And as we talked about in episode three, the sharing of perspectives is what expands our worldview. Towards the end of the conversation, Brendan asked Michael where he could find videos of his ballet online. I've been able to post some of those videos to bottomlesscoffeepodcast.com and I'll continue to update this site with new videos that Michael choreographs or performs in as they become available. This podcast and that website are both community supported. Please become a Patreon subscriber to support our content and our community. Sign up at patreon.com slash bottomlesscoffee. 
Thank you, and I'll see you next time.